I'm Alan Wardus, and you're listening to Think Radio. I always want to know what are people connecting with, what are people not liking. There are audience members, and I think a lot of times people lose sight of that. So constantly being in touch and go back to just being the person who's creating for other people. That's J.S. Mayank, professional screenwriter, director, and producer on the cutting edge of a storytelling revolution in Hollywood. Stay tuned for another great conversation on this episode of Think Radio. Think Radio is supported by the Gunnison Country Times, Gunnison's locally owned hometown newspaper, and by listeners like you. To find out how you can become a Think Radio supporter, visit kbut.org. JS, thanks for dropping by. I'm so excited to be here. Well, I've been excited about this conversation Mm -hmm. ever since we scheduled it because, frankly, I consider you to be a rare species of human. Really? Yeah. (laughs) Please do elaborate. I I plan to. (laughs) Well, because out of the, I don't know, probably millions of -hmm. people Mm -hmm. who at one point or another have said, yeah, I'd really like to write a screenplay. Right. You're somebody who's actually doing it. (laughs) I'm one of the lucky, fortunate ones. I mean, you live in L.A. I do. You have an agent. Many. Okay, so (laughs) that's what I'm talking about. You take meetings at places like HBO. Yes. And Netflix. Right. Which, by the way, it never gets any less cool. No matter how many times you go, the enthusiasm is just as much like, I can't believe I'm at HBO. (laughs) I'm sure for like a writer, I'm not having to speculate. (laughs) For a writer, that is. It's the Mecca. (laughs) Yeah. And so here you are doing what you love to do Mm -hmm. at the place where it's done. Yes. I'd love to know how you got there. (laughs) I mean, surely your parents, for instance, were very supportive and for your entire childhood um, dreamed of you becoming a Hollywood screenwriter. (laughs) Yes, I, I wish I could say that. The first part of that is is very much true. They've been incredibly supportive parents, but uh, in a different way. You know, we talk about a good story being uniquely familiar, and um, so I don't have the cool accent, but I am actually a Brit. I was born in England, and before fifteen, I sort of grew up all over the world. I was in Europe, I was in India, Saudi Arabia, here in the U.S., and. Ever since I was a kid, I knew that I wanted to tell stories. I just didn't quite understand in what way, shape, or form that was going to come across. And my parents always thought, okay, well, he has a very cool hobby. What they didn't realize that an inordinate amount of time was spent on this hobby. That, right. that and that's something that a lot of parents say to a lot of budding artists. Of course. Right? That, oh, that's so cute. You know, they like that. I wasn't getting into trouble and I was getting good grades. So what did they care? I also come from a family of doctors. So there was an expectation. They never said it quite outright, but it was the family business. My my mom had her own practice. My dad had his practice. He worked at a hospital. My uncles, aunts, everybody was, you know, they were all medical professionals. And I realized at a certain point that that was not my calling. You wanted to write a hospital-based <laughs> TV show. I, 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 I often joke now that <laughs> that would be the holy grail that I could say to my parents, I'm not a doctor, but I write one for TV. <laughs> and, <laughs> well, it could happen. You know, when I told them that, I don't think this is what I want to do. 
to their credit, they just immediately said to me, all right, well, medicine is one profession where if that isn't your first priority for the rest of your life, you probably shouldn't become a doctor. So I immediately told them, it's probably not even going to be my 10th priority. My head is always in the clouds. I'm constantly coming up with stories. And they knew that I was pretty determined and hardworking. But when I told them, I think I want to be a writer, they said, okay, so you want to be a journalist. Mm, yeah. Because that's a profession, writer. What is that profession? They just couldn't quite compute. So I, I distinctly remember one of my mom's patients, he was a journalist, you know, sat down with me as, as you do with teenagers trying to explain the whole process. And I'm explaining to him, no, I, I want to creatively like make things up. And he just at a certain point got so frustrated. He's like, well, who do you think you are? You're going to be the next John Grisham? And I said, no, I'll be the guy who adapts his books into movies. <laughs> you already knew that much. <laughs> I already knew that much. And he just sort of gave me this look like, I, okay, good luck, kid. And also, I, I wasn't really ever interested in Bollywood. So for my parents, that really just kind of felt like he's delusional at a certain point. Like, yeah. what are you going to do? And I said, sure. no, I'm going to go make movies in Hollywood. And my family said, look, we're going to be incredibly supportive of whatever you want to do. But as doctors, you can have my practice, your father's practice, your uncle's practice. <laughs> if you want to do this thing, you're, you need to figure this out. And after that, I sort of single-mindedly worked every day. I didn't know how I was going to get to L.A., but there was never a doubt in my mind that I was going to be in L.A., at some point, whether it took me 10 years, 20 years, 40 years, but I knew that I was going to get there. You're like the kid who packs up his guitar and heads for Nashville. A hundred percent. Well, I find it interesting that your parents told you medicine is not a profession that you should pursue if mm -hmm. you're not a hundred percent committed to it. Right. Because that advice is also given to writers. Absolutely. For a, kind of a different reason. Yeah. What have you discovered about that reason? Well, I mean, I talk a lot with young people, people in colleges and schools. And the question I always ask to them is, how badly do you want this? And obviously, every young person's answer is, well, I want it more than anything. And I say, OK, so let's, let's backtrack. Is there anything else you can imagine yourself doing and being happy? And I ask them to raise their hands. And anybody who raises their hand, I say, please go do that instead. <laughs> because there are better ways to be happy, to make a living, to have a career. And if you're doing this to make money, to get famous, for any of the other reasons, there are way better ways to do that. I tell writers, directors, actors, creatives that to me, it's a compulsion, not a choice. I would be doing this, I would wake up every morning and I would write whether somebody paid me or not. Yeah. If I had a crummy day job, I would do that. And then at night, I would come and I would count down minutes until I could rush to my laptop. Well, I recently had uh, Dr. Paul Edwards on the show, mm -hmm. who is has been a theater um, director and playwright his whole life. And he said the same thing. I asked him why. <laughs> and he said, because I couldn't imagine not. Yeah, there's there's just no other choice. And every creative person, people I've looked up to, I mean, recently um, I was in India when I was still a teenager and I would watch the Oscars or the Emmys, which would be on a Sunday evening here, but in India it would be a Monday morning. So I would conveniently get sick <laughs> and stay home. And, you know, it took like four or five years for my parents to catch on. Like, uh, But I remember watching somebody win the Emmy 
And, you know, about a few months ago, I was in a room with the same producer whom I had seen win the Emmy. Mm -hmm. We're pitching a TV show, and he looks at the head of the network and says, JS is my favorite writer working in Hollywood. And there was no other qualifiers, not in the genre, not for the moment. It was just that. And I almost had to pinch myself going, (laughs) what world am I living in that this person that I've looked up to that inspired me when I was a teenager looking up, one day I will get here, and then them saying something so complimentary about my work. Well, that's one of the things that young writers Mm -hmm. don't quite understand, though, is because some of them might hear that story and think of it as sort of instantaneous success. But this is the long game. I mean, that's many years between many years of intense labor, long hours, dozens and dozens of disappointments. Yes, it's so much work and so much patience and just never taking no for an answer. Mm -hmm. To me, every no to me is just okay, I I turned that stone and that's not, you know, the thing that opens the door. All right, I'm going to go on to the next one. And I just keep going until I will finally get to the point where I get to do this professionally. And honestly, it's been the most amazing experience just looking back at that journey and having some of those touchstone moments. I've I've heard it said that anything that looks like overnight success – If you dig a little deeper, you will find that that person has had to invest a minimum of 10,000 hours. 100%. (laughs) And they use Bill Gates as an example. The Beatles, they spent years working nightclubs in Hamburg, Mm -hmm. playing eight-hour sets, all original music. So this is the lesson that I think is really interesting for creatives is that it's not a lightning strike. No. No, it's not. You know, the pressure builds and the storm is approaching and then nothing happens. But you're you're getting really prepared. And every time you grab your gear and you say, OK, we got to batten down the hatches, we got to. So it's over and over and over and you get quicker at spotting the, you know, the lightning <laughs> and you're chasing it and you're getting closer and closer. And sometimes you'll be out in the open field and the lightning will strike and it's two centimeters to your left and you go. I was this close. (laughs) But you can either pack up and leave then or you say, all right, I was just two centimeters away. And I happen to be one of those eternal optimists who always looks at the glass half full, even though sometimes there are frustrations, there are letdowns. But I try not to make any decisions in, in the moment, in the heat of it. And you know, my, my mom has a saying, and, you know, as, as teenagers and growing up, I, I never really thought much of it. I thought it was just another platitude. And now finally it has kicked in for me and I've understood. So she would say, if it happens the way you want, it's good. If it doesn't happen the way you want, it's even better. And if I want something, if I'm working towards a, an outcome, if it happens, that's great. But if I don't get the desired result, a lot of times we have a tendency to go, well, that was a lot of wasted time and effort. Mm-hmm. What I don't realize is it, it saved me from all those other things that it could have taken me a wrong path. True. And the best opportunity in my life could be right around the corner. And now you have the tools to And now I have the tools. And in over the last couple of years, every single bit of success that has come my way, I can link back directly to a moment where I thought, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. <laughs> and I just go, 
oh my god it's a straight line yeah. and it's you give it enough time and perspective and you start to see that i just control my actions and that's about it so i'm constantly working on how can i be a better writer how can i be a better filmmaker collaborator human being all of those things and sort of surrendering that specific outcome that you're thinking of well there you have it the the path to success mm-hmm. it's it's not what most people think <laughs> <laughs> not even close so going back to your childhood and mm-hmm. you knew you wanted to tell stories that's still is a pretty broad universe. You could Mm -hmm. have been writing comic books. Mm -hmm. You could have uh, gone the John Gershom route and written novels. Um, Why film? What was it about film that captured you right from the beginning? Well, so I'm actually one of those cases where it wasn't film from the beginning. Um, When I was two and a half years old, I would draw these these little sketches and I would grab my mom, my dad, my uncles, aunts, grandparents, anybody I could and I would say, write down this story and I would dictate it to them and I was that obnoxious kid who would say, no, 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 you changed a word. And they said, oh, I thought you meant to say it and I would say, if I meant to say it, I would have said it that oh, way. Oh, you were a born director. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, and so I did write a lot of short stories and you know I wrote the terrible novel that every wannabe writer, especially in your teen years, does. And it just sparked an interest in me. And then I read the screenplay for The Sixth Sense. Mm -hmm. And that changed my life because I read it before I saw the movie. It was written and directed by an Indian person. So I thought, oh, this is a Hollywood movie. This can be done. They allow us to do that? (laughs) That, that, That's something that can be done? And then when I saw the film, the movie I had seen in my head reading the pages was exactly the same movie, which to me was an aha moment. And Mm. I said, oh, that's how you do it. So I became obsessed with it. And I got a master's degree at Wake Forest in communication and film, and it was a two-year program. So I went, and in one year, I took all the courses. And the (laughs) second year, I just stayed there and watched 1,500 films in one year. Is that even possible? It is absolutely possible. That's five films a day. Yes. I was one of the first people to get Netflix when it was still just the DVD. I would get five at a time. I would go see every movie that came out in the movie theater, and I made best friends with the librarian. And I would go in, and after a certain point of her saying, all right, I have to go dig through this, after about a month, she just said, just go back. Gave you the keys. Gave me the keys. I would come up with 20 movies, and it would be, you know, movies from the the 30s, 40s, you know, uh, Italian cinema, Polish cinema. I would watch Asian movies. I would watch everything that I could. And that was sort of my education because growing up, I always liked movies, but I I didn't have access growing up in all these places. I was more of a reader. And so I just became a sponge. And in doing that, I knew, well, this is what I've got to do for the rest of my life.
Well, so in that year, you watched a lot of really bad movies. Oh, yeah, absolutely. What did you learn from the bad ones? That anybody can make a movie. (laughs) (laughs) But not everyone should. But not everyone should. But I think I learned so much about what works, what doesn't, and that also nobody ever sets out to make a bad movie. That's an incredible lesson. That sounds simplistic, but, uh, you know, I'll tell you a quick story if I could. Um, This was about seven or eight years ago. I was in Los Angeles and, you know, I was having a pretty crummy day where nothing was going my way. All the meetings were terrible and people were passing on my scripts. And I'm at the Arclight Theater, which is sort of a flagship place in Los Angeles, I'm going up the escalator and there's uh, a woman in her, I want to say late 60s. She goes up and, you know, disappears because I'm still at the bottom of the escalator. And I hear a blood curdling scream. So I obviously (laughs) rush up like what's happening in a bunch of us. We descend upon this woman. We're like, ma'am, are you okay? And she's in tears, hysterics. And she's staring at a movie poster. And she says, I can't believe they're remaking Conan the Barbarian, the best movie ever made. (laughs) And we're all befuddled. But I just left that moment going, oh, my God. You know, Conan the Barbarian, you know, with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Okay, the fun B-movie. But it it affected someone so much that this broke their heart. And I'm like... I think I can make a movie better than that. Yeah. So, but there's that, an audience for it, right? Clearly. But there's an audience for it, and and that no matter what you do, I think somebody might care that deeply. Mm, and if you don't yeah. have that chance yet, work on your craft, keep putting in the hours, uh, you know, and 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 you can get there. And it was just such a terrific, you know, learning experience for me. You just described yes. the holy grail for a writer. Yes. And that is to connect with that audience. You can't lose sight of that. And that's the thing why I tell people, no matter what you do, go watch movies in the movie theater. Surround yourself with people who are just going to the movies because they want to watch the film. Talk to people who are watching TV shows who are not TV critics, who are not in the business, who are like, hey, it's a Friday evening and I'm tired and I've had a really long week. Let's check what's on Netflix. What's the new show mm-hmm. on Hulu or Amazon or, you know, on NBC, they're, they're showing these promos. I always want to know what are people connecting with? What are people not liking? Listen to what they say. About yes, it. Yeah. absolutely. There are audience members. And I think a lot of times people lose sight of that. So constantly being in touch and, you know, go back to just being the person who's creating for other people. Yeah, be that kid who's drawing sketches and, and dictating to your parents. <laughs> so you also teach. I do, yes. So I'm the screenwriting concentration director in the MFA creative writing program at Western State. And it is just a fantastic program. It's a low residency program. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, I live in Los Angeles. I am able to teach on a weekly basis while still being in LA. And I think it's such an incredible experience and a blessing because from my point of view, I love teaching because it helps me solidify why something works or why something doesn't. You know, when I get a student script and I'm looking at it and sort of 
tearing it apart, I can't say, hey, this scene or this character doesn't work just because. Mm-hmm. I have to mm-hmm. then analyze it, give them a couple of fixes, say, you might want to look at this thing, that thing. And invariably when I'm doing that, it'll give me a clue into something I myself have been wrestling with or have overlooked. I've taught in the program for this is my eighth year now, and I feel I'm I'm much better of a writer just for having read these countless scripts, for working with different styles of writers and understanding how each person's process is different. And, you know, the, the low residency of it has been a fantastic aspect to that because I can continue doing what I do at the highest level. I mean, I could have a meeting at Warner Brothers, Sony, HBO, and Amazon all in the same week. And then at the weekend, I'm talking to my students and explaining to them, okay, this is how you pitch a show. Uh, Don't make the mistakes that I just made. And I can give them that firsthand experience. Yeah, I was going to say, they probably want to know more about that. What was it like sitting down at HBO than some of the other nuts and bolts? But it's been said Mm -hmm. that writing is not the sort of thing you can teach. I'm not advocating that point of view. I'm just bringing it up to hear your perspective. Yes. Because there is an mm -hmm. X factor. There is something that sets apart a mediocre writer from somebody who just shines. A hundred percent. In eight years, what would you say that thing is? So when we admit students, we have multiple criteria. So the things that I can teach, I can teach format. That's the simplest one. I can teach you structure. I can teach you how to make a character better, fuller, richer. I can even teach you how to make your dialogue better. The one thing I can't teach you is voice. Hmm. What I mean by that is, what if I gave a two-line idea to you, Alan, and Betty Smith, and Joe somebody, and I'll say you have four pages to write something, and I give you everything, so you're, you're pretty much doing the same thing. All three of these scripts are going to be completely different because you're different people with your experiences, with your outlooks in life, what you're thinking. And that's something that I cannot teach. So that X factor that you're talking about is voice. So if you take an analogy of somebody who gets into sports or somebody who wants to be a singer, you can either sing or you can't. We can help you, train you. You know, there's so much you can do to make somebody's performance better. But if you can't hit the ball, you can't make somebody hit the ball. <laughs> no, so right. it's it's the voice, it's the unique expression. And at the end of the day, any writer, Aaron Sorkin, Quentin Tarantino, Diablo Cody, these people that you think of as incredible writers, they're that because of their voice. It's and is that something that, that you would give advice on how to cultivate? Absolutely. That's that's what writing is for. That's what writing is for. And that's why I tell people, uh, I encourage them to look at their samples that they submitted to me. And even at the end of the first year say, is this the same writer? Mm. And most of the times they're like, I I don't even know what I was doing when I submitted that sample. It feels so different. And I'm like, everything else has been you. It is your personal growth that Mm. is happening. So that's exciting. Yeah. Well, speaking of exciting, Mm -hmm. I think that the age we live in is really interesting. There are tectonic changes happening in how we tell stories, Mm -hmm. how we um, tell them, and how we consume them. I want to hear from you if you think these changes, and I'm referring to 
streaming services mm-hmm. like Netflix where there are no commercials anymore and you mm-hmm. pay to play, so to speak. Mm-hmm. How is that changing storytelling? I think one of the things that's exciting storytellers is platforms like Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, they're actually empowering the storytellers to take chances. And Mm. they really are saying, swing for the fences. We don't want mediocre programming. We might cancel you after one season, but that first season, we're not going to give you too many notes. We'll let you do what you do. A lot of the the runaway successes in Mm. recent times have been things where they were virtually untouched by executives and studios and networks where they said, look, here are the important people. We trust you. You're talented. We've liked your work. We like this vision. Go. Now, that's also different because in in network TV, there's so much money involved. So on some of these streaming services, they're willing to take a chance because they're saying it's not that big of a commitment for us. We're not spending NBC, CBS level of money so we can actually give you a chance. We're not trying gunning for 22 episodes. We'll give you eight. So for creators, it is a cost-benefit analysis. Do I want to try to make that big money consistency or do I really just want to do what I want to do? And that's one of the biggest shifts to me is recently I was reading that the network executives have said it's so disheartening now because we're almost the last stop on the circuit for people (laughs) after they couldn't sell anywhere on cable and now they're doing a diluted version of their pitch for us. I could not believe that, but it makes total sense. Well, interesting that they recognize that it has to be diluted. Yes. That what these cable outlets have Mm -hmm. done, particularly the streaming services, Mm -hmm. is allow writers to be a whole lot more edgy. Yes. A lot more... um, deep in their analysis of mm-hmm. psychology and right. human behavior. Yeah, absolutely. The, the only thing I would edit there is for certain shows, yes, they can be edgier, but HBO and Showtime have always, FX has always pushed for edge. To me, I think they're trusting their writers to tell their story. So whether it's a marvelous Mrs. Maisel, where it's not about edge, it's about right. being true to the the story. It's and, about you know, innovation. This is the writer who did Gilmore Girls, you know? So she, I mean, and there's nothing in Mrs. Maisel that couldn't have been on a network. But it's just that, do I want to fight for every little thing that I want to do? And it becomes, not really. So I think I'm going to go to Amazon instead. <laughs> and that's where they're empowering. And, and I think yeah. it's something the networks will have to learn and grow. And, you know, we'll see where this, where this goes. But what does all that mean uh, to the consumer of stories? Well, I think, you know, from, from just purely the audience point of view, I think they have a little bit of problem of too many options and too many choices. Oh, I have that problem. <laughs> Where, you know, every conversation, you know, it used to be, hey, did you watch that episode of West Wing or Lost and <laughs> Game of Thrones? And now it's all like, hey, are you watching this show? And like, oh, no, I haven't even heard of that. Are you watching this show? No, I need to put it on my queue. The first 10 minutes of any conversation are you just feeling guilty about all the shows that you've heard of that are amazing, but have no time to catch up on. But again, as creatives, we're living in like, oh my God, everybody can possibly have a show. And you you also have a diversity of voice. There are so many shows that 
nobody would have even thought of that, hey, this could be a show. This could be an interesting point of view. And I feel a lot of people are getting chances to tell stories that um, the audiences are like, wow, I've never seen or heard anything like that before. And that, I think, is where it's exciting as a creator. Well, one thing about changes like that is you can never go back. Thankfully. <laughs> yeah. The, the audience is trained now, yes. and these writers are trained now. Absolutely. To expect this level of uh, freedom and also quality. And sophistication. Sophistication. Yeah. yeah. Jess, thanks for dropping by. Thank you so much. This Always has been a an absolute blast. Think Radio is a production of Alan Wardus Media. To contact Alan, visit alanwardusmedia.com. The show's producer is Issa Forrest. Original music by Issa Forrest. Thanks for listening. Join us next week for another great conversation on Think Radio.